everyone, this is Sarah Stone and welcome to this week's episode of The Tennis Connection. This week, our guest is Alexandra Stevenson. Alexandra reached a career-high ranking of number 18 in the world, and in 1999, she was a semi-finalist at Wimbledon. And get this, she came all the way through qualifying to get there. Alexandra has one of the biggest serves in tennis, and she is a phenomenal tennis mind. We are really privileged to spend some time with her this week, and Margot asked her the tough questions about what it's like being on tour, and what does she stay connected to while she's on the road? That's right, Sarah. Thanks so much for that little intro. Alexandra is about to come on the line, and I hope she's ready. <laughs> Alexandra Stevenson, welcome to the Tennis Connection. It's Thanks, a, Margo. A podcast for the WTCA. Um, we're so thrilled to have you here and just talk to you a little bit about your experience in the, the world of tennis. Well, I started at 18 years old. Um, I had just graduated from high school. And I was in Wimbledon qualifying, and I went over to the grass to play the pre-warm-ups, Birmingham and Eastbourne. Actually, I didn't play Eastbourne because I was in qualifying, and I happened to make it qualifying to the semis, and I matched John John McEnroe's record. He did qualifying to the semis in 1977. So before I was born, before you were born. (laughs) What an amazing record to match. Yeah, so that was a pretty cool record. And the deal was I was going to UCLA for tennis. And I told my mom when we were flying over to England for the first time that if I got to the semis, qualifying to the semis or qualifying to win the tournament, then I wouldn't have to go to UCLA. And she said, okay, that would be a deal because I wanted to turn pro. But she wanted me to go to college first. And so that was our deal. Nobody knew about it. And, you know, I visualized and made it happen. Fantastic. Yeah. So that was my first foray into professional sports. And so having not gone to college at that time, how do you feel that that changed your career path as a player? Well, I think because I went from a hundred and something in the world to 36 overnight. It was a big jump. And when you get to that ranking, you kind of can't go to college to play tennis. I did end up going to school. My mom was like, you're still going to get your degree. (laughs) So I went to University of Colorado, had a great online program at the time, and they were just starting it. And they accepted me as a guinea pig to be able to travel around the world to see if they could get it off the ground. And I graduated in 2007 with a degree in sociology, liberal arts degree. Ooh, congratulations. Thanks. So I I did go to school. I just did it in a roundabout way while I was playing professional tennis. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, once you reach a certain level of tennis, uh, you've got to go with it while you've got that opportunity. Exactly. And, you know, now in 2019, players can go to school and the school will support their professional aspirations. And back in 2000, you know, if you went to school, you were going to school. They weren't going to help you get on the pro tour. So it's changed in the last 20 years, 19, 20 years. It definitely has, yes. Yeah, schools want to support players to play for them and also to become a professional. Mm -hmm. 
So you've had an incredibly long career as a tennis player and, and it spanned decades, actually. How do you feel over the years that you've grown or changed or evolved as a player? Well, that's a good question. Well, I think in the beginning, you know, the courts were quick. So you had old school grass court style play. Pete Sambers serving volley, big hitting, and the hard courts were fast. Um, play obviously was the slowest surface at that time in the 2000s. And now, you know, you can play on a hard court that's slower than a clay court. So I think the contrast wow. styles has changed, and I've had to adjust. I, I had a shoulder surgery, and coming back from that was very difficult. Nobody said I could. Everybody said there was no way I could come back from my surgery, and, and I did because I just didn't give up. That's and the best motivation, isn't it, though, when people exactly. tell you you can't do something. Exactly. And so I had to – but I had to adjust my game to the slow courts myself since I didn't have a coach. And I had to figure it out. I watched a lot of video, and also playing in the Challengers was different because the girls – you know, they had the adjustments and I was like, why, why isn't my three ball rally not working? It should be, the point should be over and the ball was coming back. So I think the spin, the spins of the game, the strings have changed and the rackets have changed. I used to have a 90 inch racket and now I have a 98, which sounds a lot like what Roger Federer had to go through. You used you know, to play with a 90 inch square inch yes. racket? Yes, I, wow. and I didn't want to switch because I loved it. But after a while, you know, it became harder to return with the 90-inch because of the court surface changes and because the girls are playing with a 100-inch or 110-inch with all Luxalon and they had more power. So even if they didn't have the best technique, you know, they could shank the ball and it would go in the court with spin. So it... it it was an adjustment and I finally had to make the adjustment to the 98 inch about two years ago. Wow. Yeah. I'm amazed that you were playing with a 90. Gosh. Yeah. I loved my 90. Yeah. No, I can relate. I used to play with a 95 and now I'm playing with a 98 and I felt oh, like yeah. such a traitor when I changed. <laughs> see, see, you went up too. <laughs> well, it's, 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 uh, so yeah, it's like you say, the technology has evolved and changed over the years. Yeah, and I mean, you can't be stuck in the mud about it. You just have to kind of go with the flow. Do you feel like uh, having that injury at such a peak time in your career and, and then fighting to come back has taught you some lessons from a mental perspective that you wouldn't have otherwise learned? Oh, for sure. I mean, I do a speech called Manners and Match Toughness, winning and losing on and off the field to play, because I think it can, what I've gone through can, can, I can relate to every sport or even people in office jobs because I've had definitely had triumph and disaster. <laughs> you know, the Kipling quote above center court triumph and di disaster and treat them both the same. Absolutely. Well, yes. I've had to do that. And it was unfortunate because I was 18 in the world. I really had broken through. I had beat four top 10 players in one tournament beaten. And, you know, I was really figuring out how to play on the tour, which is also something interesting about WTCA because 
some of the coaches I had along the way didn't know how to handle me as a woman player, even though I had a male game. They, you know, there were certain aspects of women's tennis that I just didn't receive when I was younger because I, I kind of broke out onto the scene so young and early and I didn't have a team around me. I just had my mom and my junior coaches at home. What would be those aspects that you're referring to? Well, I think the grind of playing every week and how to handle it with having a woman's body and how to bounce back and how to deal with, I mean, maybe too much information, but how to deal with your period when you're playing that week. That's tough. Absolutely. Um, Not many men are going to know how to do that. No. (laughs) And how to play, you know, when you're tired, what adjustments to make, um, how to adjust your serve you know women have tight tighter hips than men so maybe you know on the faster surfaces how to adjust and I think that's a big thing that I really like Sarah is trying to bring into women's tennis is you know understanding the woman as an athlete absolutely I think it's very important oh for sure and you know my mom was a sports writer And so she would, this is interesting information because it is science. She would chart my period weeks and I would always lose the day before my period. If I had it, I would always lose my match. Wow. And we never really figured out how to fix it. It was, it's, I mean, we didn't have, you know, now this sounds silly. It sounds like I'm 90 years old nowadays. Last night, I've been doing some commentary for World Team Tennis and I watched um, this 17-year-old girl who was a top junior. And, you know, they're paying $300,000 a year for this girl. And I was shocked. And I was like, at 18, I got to the semis of Wimbledon and I was not getting $300,000 a year or a coach. And she's traveling with a physical therapist during World Team Tennis for three weeks. So, you know, the game has changed that way. There's a lot of more money being thrown out to juniors without having had big results. And the way I did it was kind of Rocky-esque. I mean, it still is Rocky-esque. Absolutely. (laughs) It's like the female Rocky. You're just putting it all together with what you have. Yeah. Um, I'd love to go back a little bit to your survival guide with manners and match toughness. Uh Um, obviously we don't have probably it's an hour long or something, but perhaps you could give us like a little mini version or the highlights of this speech. Yeah. I mean, I talk to kids. I I've spoken to adults and I've spoken to college kids and it's all about how to deal with winning and losing and what you put into it and how do you address in your everyday life to stay positive and all the thoughts that you think and it really matters what you say and what you put out there and you know you don't want to project any negative thoughts to anybody else or in your mind and also I like to talk to them about you know work ethic and working hard and making a plan every day about what you're going to do so if you're playing tennis you know you have your meals prepared, you have your nutrition, you have your training 
schedule. You have what you want to work with on the court. You want to, you have what you want to work on the court with with your coach, and it's about you as a player taking accountability and making your schedule, and then working with your coach or your boss and being becoming a team. But really, at the end of the day, it's you who can get everything done. And if you think about it in a positive light every day, you'll be successful. That's absolutely fantastic advice. I love it. It's really <laughs> nicely put. Well done. Thanks. And also, you know, failures happen. And I think you have a lot of failures along the way in life, but you learn from them. And if you learn from them in the correct way, you'll always be successful. Absolutely. Yeah, there's always a lesson somewhere. Exactly. It's not always easy, but you've got to find it. Yeah, I mean, if it's easy, that's nice. But <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you haven't had it easy. I haven't had it easy. Most people in the world, it's it's a difficult journey. Yes, and this advice can be applied to absolutely everything. Oh, exactly. It could be applied to even the president of the United States. <laughs> he should probably take that advice. But yeah, it could be applied to business people, to athletes. And I especially think it's really important to kids right now because the generation, I mean, we're millennials generation. I'm Yeah, we're. I think you're a millennial, right? I'm right on the cusp, yeah. You're right on the cusp. Yeah. And then behind us is Generation Z or something. And then behind us is I don't even know what, but... There's definitely, because they've grown up with social media and everything's easy access, I think the younger kids kind of feel entitled to having everything. And it's easy information. You know, you can just look something up. You don't have to work hard to figure it out. Absolutely. You know, giving this speech gives them, you know, another look. Yeah, it's definitely some really valuable lessons there. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to change um, track just a little bit, um, you've traveled, as we said, on the tour for many, many years and you've experienced uh, all angles of it. And yes. <laughs> sometimes I think that what people don't see, especially when they're watching tennis on TV, they don't see the grind and the struggles. Do you have uh, maybe a story or something that you can give to our listeners that explain what it's like behind the camera, behind the oh, racket? Oh, yes. Well, I have a lot of stories, but because Sarah Stone is the creator of WTCA, I have a great story about Sarah and me and my mother and Alexa Glatch in Japan. And we were going to a small $25,000 challenger, which means, you know, a lot of the listeners might not know. They think $25,000 is a lot of money. Well, that means the total the total prize money. So if you win the tournament, you maybe walk away with 2,500. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're in qualifying, you walk away with paying for qualifying if you lose in the first round. So you actually have to pay the entry fee. Yes. And so it's very expensive. And there were this tournament in Maka Nahara, Japan. And it was right, it was a seaside town. And it was on synthetic grass, and it was actually right after the big tsunami there. So the nuclear plant had 
had trouble. And so you didn't really want to eat any seafood. Oh my gosh. And, and so Sarah and I, my mom and Alexa were on the train, the bullet train to get to Makanahara from, I think from Osaka or something. And, you know, you have to lug your bags. There is no elevators. You had to go up the stairs. You had to load your bags, get on the bullet train. Then you're sitting in the back after a full day of travel already. And you have to, to go on three hours of a train ride, get in a taxi to the little hotel where nobody speaks English. There's no food. You have to go to the little grocery store. And then they had no breakfast for anyone because they just had closed the restaurant for the players. And so we did eggs in a teapot. So we took eggs and put them in those the electronic teapots that they have in your room, and we boiled them every day. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and Sarah was eating the um, tuna sushi rolls that you can get at the gas stations in Japan. She, like, loves those. those. They come in a, like, cellophane wrapper. It's like the Twinkie of Japan. <laughs> so she oh, wow. those every day. And my mom and I would boil eggs in a teapot. Oh, <laughs> it gosh. actually could be a little story, eggs in a teapot. It was so funny. Yeah. And I actually think Alexa did really well that tournament. She might have gotten to the finals. She really likes synthetic grass. I bombed out. I played a Japanese who lives on this stuff. And... If you don't know how to play on it, you're in trouble. And it was I grew up on synthetic glass and I still don't know how to play on it. Yeah, so you know, it's yeah. not easy. And yeah. the Japanese girls had special shoes to move on mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't. <laughs> and it was a nightmare. And I was like, I'm never going back to Nakanohara, Japan. So, And you have nobody watching you. So it's a little tournament. And you have... I mean, I had my mom and and Alexa had Sarah. So you're in like a hotel situation on these little dinky courts, no ball kids. I don't even think any water. Um, the beach, it only had the ocean because of the tsunami. So the beach had kind of eroded into the ocean. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so what a week. You couldn't even walk out to like test the water because it was just a big hole. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, so that was uh, interesting. I mean, coming back with my shoulder, I've seen everything and all these dinky tournaments. And it's really unfortunate that the world sees Grand Slams and they think that's what tennis is. Yeah. And that tennis has not addressed the challengers, which get you to the Grand Slams and help build your points. You know, the prize money is still the same from the 1970s. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. And, you know, it's just, it's just not fun. My mom's in the background and she's saying, tell her about the bombing in Istanbul when you were there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's another story. That's we were awful. in Istanbul. They had a tournament there and a bomb went off in the bazaar. And Venus and I were going to go to the bazaar, Venus Williams. And we decided not to go and we went to go eat it eat at a really good fish restaurant and that night they bombed the bazaar wow that's that's another crazy story but out of all these crazy stories which i think everyone who's struggled out at the 25k 50k level has experienced everybody has them do you find that you've found you've must have made some absolutely fantastic bonds and friendships with people around the world 
Well, no. (laughs) I mean, for me, because I came up and I kind of, you know, I got to the top of tennis. I didn't get to top 10, but I was top 20. And then I got injured and, you know, lost my agent and all my sponsors and had to start over myself and started out on the challenger level to build back. I had mean girls. So besides Sarah and Alexa, who have been stalwarts and, you know, loyal friends, the girls on the tour were not welcoming to me that were on the ITF level. I've had a couple, Greta Arn, because we came up together. A couple of the girls that I came up with have been nice, but most of them, it was like, you're in my turf, get out of here. Gosh. Yeah, so that was tough, too, because... I just wanted to come in, you know, do my job, be nice in the locker room, you know, you're, you're cordial, and you go in, you play your match, you leave. That's what my MO has been. And, you know, you make some friends and you play doubles, but coming into these challengers, I was shocked. I was getting cheered against. Girls would line up on the fences. This was in America. Um, some in Australia, too, they would come and cheer against you. If you're playing their friend, they would say it was like they were stalking my court. Yeah, I've had some bad experiences in the challengers. And I came away thinking it's literally the Hunger Games. I mean, it's kill or be killed. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they felt like I was in their territory. But I, I don't really know because I have always been a good sportsman. You know, I've always gone, done my business and not bothered anyone. And being out on the court, having six girls line against, against you, cheering against you, you know, that was annoying. It, of course, it just made me tougher. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I must say, I think that perhaps college tennis prepared me for things like that a little bit. Because, yes, of course, there's always sure. a cheering squad against you in college tennis. Yeah, and that was something I missed and I didn't have. So I was like, and a lot of the girls had played college tennis. And so maybe that's why they were doing it. Mm. I just, it was like a foreign territory to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. And I remember definitely in college, those kinds of things are, are quite tough at first and you simply have to learn how to deal with them because they oh, come yeah. with it. Yeah. And then you're calling your own lines. And I'm like <laughs> panicked because I've always had a linesman. I mean, juniors, I call my own lines. But I always give, if it's close, I play everything. And then you're playing these girls that have played college tennis and they're crafty. And if it's a close ball on the line, they're going to call it out. And you you go, so I'm sure you experienced that. And I, I was like, what is going on? And then I remember playing in Australia a couple times without linesmen or an umpire. And the girl would change the score on you. So wow. I would just start calling the girls' score and my score out loud because I remember as a junior, I went to a little tennis camp with Billie Jean King, and she told us, make sure you call the score. And if your opponent doesn't call the score, you call their score. And that, I, that just stayed with me. So as a junior, I was known as I kept the score because, you know, Billie Jean King tells you to do the score. You do the score. You do whatever she says. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I went back to my junior days and at like 33 years old, 
I'm calling everybody's score. And then the girl's still trying to change the score on me. And the, the line umpire would walk by or the head umpire, they have a roving umpire. And he would walk by and he'd tell the girl, you're calling the wrong score. Don't you know she's calling your score? Why are you changing it? No. So just, just silly things that you think you've worked so hard to be a professional and this stuff goes on. Yeah. So you and must. Another thing is, sorry to interrupt you, no. but the men don't have this. So the men get ball kids and an umpire on the challenger tour and the women do not in the qualifying. Yeah. Because the women won't fight for it and the men do. And that's unfortunate. So I feel like you've found yourself in all manner of situations here and, and more probably lately more than ever, you, you feel yeah, somewhat yeah. isolated when you're traveling like this. Oh, for sure. Are there ways that you kind of cope with this? Well, that's why I came up with my speech because I feel like I've always had manners and I've always been that tough and I've been probably you know undersold on my match toughness just because I haven't been out there and they like to say uh, like oh Maria Sharapova is so match tough well you know it's easy for her to be match tough she's got millions of dollars and she just has to show up <laughs> you know and she is match tough but you know to go what I've been through and to keep fighting because I love tennis and I love the sport and as an athlete, I know that I'm not finished because, as you know, athletes know when they're done. Yes. And nobody can tell them when they're done. They just know. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Tom Brady says the same thing. <laughs> and I feel like it's really helped me grow as a person in real life yes. and in my tennis life. And anyone anyone says now doesn't really bother me. It just makes me tougher. That's great. But also, you don't really have friends because my generation of players, there's a few of us left on tour. But in the challengers, some of them are playing doubles still. But in America, it's all run by, I mean, it's like the Indians are running it. It's just a totally different way of being. It's. I remember when I first met Monica Sellis at 16 years old and I was so respectful and I was just amazed. And this is a cute little story. She was, I had won this tournament to get into the Lacosta tournament. Do you remember when there used to be a tournament in San Diego? Yes. Well, she waited for me to get out of school because I was coming up from La Jolla to Lacosta, which takes about 40 minutes and we were in traffic and so she knew I was driving up and she waited she put her pushed her practice back she waited to meet me to hand me my little certificate that I had gotten into the main Lacosta tournament and I that always resonated with me and I always remembered that because she was a champion and she was so such a nice champion and she knew that I loved her and so she wanted to wait so that I could meet her. Oh, that's adorable. Wow. Yeah. And I think now the younger generation doesn't respect the champions. Not that I've won a Grand Slam, but they're just, you know, there's no respect anymore in the game. That's an interesting think, take on things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what's sad. You know, Steffi Graf 
Times, Martina Navratilova, before I played, there always seemed to be a respect. And it's, but that's also social media and, you know, it's the day, the age we live in, in the world in general. Yeah, definitely. Times have changed. Yeah. And I think on the men's side, you see it a little bit more. The men respect each other more. I think the vibe on the men's tour is very different than it is on the women's tour. Yeah, from what totally I understand. Totally different. <laughs> I mean, they can go get in a fight on the court and then go play cards after. I know. It's so different. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I grew up around boys. And so my vibe was you go, you play on the court, you battle it out, and then you go have a burger at Johnny Rockets. <laughs> so then. Being on the women's tour, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, it's definitely not like that. (laughs) And then they hold a grudge for life. Forever. Forever. (laughs) In like 20 years, they'll still be like, and you beat me on this shot and I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) So, but there are some women out there that don't do that. Yeah, that was another lesson that for me, I really had to learn in college tennis because as a team, you can't hold those grudges against each other because you need all of the, everyone needs to be working together to yeah, win. Yeah, exactly. And you have to perform as a team. So you got to get over it fast. Yep, exactly. You mentioned earlier that you are commentating for world team tennis a little bit. Yes, that kind of just came up um, about a week ago. I've done four nights. I'm doing five nights. The next night is on the 31st. And it's been interesting. I've never done it before. And the production staff, it's streaming. So they kind of just threw me in. Like, here, just they push you off the cliff and do whatever you want. And then I got some direction the second and third day. So what do you find, like, I've always thought watching uh, tennis on TV, the commentary it actually must be quite challenging to always have something remotely interesting to say after every point. Do you find that? Uh, well, I did my homework. <laughs> and so because I had no direction, but because my mom's a sports writer, I knew what to do. So I knew that listening to commentary You know, to be a good commentator, you have to have a lot of information. And world team tennis is like three hours long. So it's not, it's not a a usual broadcast. Like a women's, women's match might be an hour and 15 minutes or, I mean, they, you know, the men's matches in Grand Slams can go five hours, but it's not like I'm going to do that right away. So it was a bit of a learning curve, but I made sure I went down and interviewed every player before I went on air and got fun facts about them so that I could add color into speaking about how they're playing their match. Excellent. Yeah, and I brought pop culture and fun. I got in trouble the first night because this is funny. I, you know, you put a headset on and you're supposed to hear your director in your right ear. Well, the headset didn't work the entire broadcast, so I could only hear the play-by-play guy. And the play-by-play guy had never done tennis. Oh, and so yeah. basically, I was running I was running the commentary. And it was so funny because I got a call the next day from the executive producer. And he said, do you know the job of an analyst is to sit there and wait to be spoken to? <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't know that. 
And so he's like, yes, you need to wait to be called upon. And I said, okay, sure, I'll, I'll do that. I can follow the rules. <laughs> and so it was so funny, but my aunt who worked at CBS um, for like 42 years as a technical director had listened Monday night and she said I did great. So I thought I had done really well and then I got a phone call getting in trouble. <laughs> but if you didn't have the headpiece working, it's not exactly your fault. Exactly. So I said, look, I couldn't hear anyone. So the last three nights they got the headpiece working and I followed the instruction and broadcasting is different because you hear dead air and you feel like you should fill it. And I like to be detailed, but apparently you're supposed to be short and succinct in what you say. And so I'm working on that. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes that doesn't come naturally to some people. Yeah. And I know you've done it a lot. And so, and it is funny, the guy I'm speaking with, he hasn't done tennis, so he kind of was thrown off the cliff too. And so he was like one, one, uh, call he did, he was like, and he hits a widget down the alley. (laughs) I I was like, a what? (laughs) But I didn't say that. I just kept on going. (laughs) What what did he say? I don't know. I never heard. I was like, are we talking about cricket? But I don't think they have widgets in cricket. No, they don't. It's not yeah. it's, it's not a word I'm familiar with. Yeah, me either. So I don't know what he was. Maybe it was a wimple. I don't, it was something funny. Gosh. And, but, but I just pressed the cough button and laughed a little bit. So they didn't hear me. Oh, okay. So, all right. Just to wrap up, I'd like to finish off with your absolute favorite highlight of your career so far. Well, there's more, right? Yeah, of course. There's more coming. So career so far. Well, I feel like I'm still waiting for my highlight of winning a Grand Slam. I mean, that's my ultimate goal. And I'll never let that go, no matter what anybody says. But I think my highlight has been my resilience and my willing to fight back when everything is against me. Wow, that's deep. And that's I'll, yeah, well, it is deep. I mean, I mean, I am from America, and I should be an American player, but I definitely feel like I have no country. Oh, <laughs> that was a zinger, huh? How sad. <laughs> yeah, it is sad. Uh, you know, it's sad, and but that's the way it is in American tennis. I think tennis is a lot like that, though. Yeah, tennis shuts it's you such out. an individual sport. It's an individual sport. And, you know, if you're not current, they forget about you. And But that's like most of the world. But, you know, Serena has won multiple Grand Slams, but her team makes sure she stays relevant. So even when she loses, she has a story. Like she's in Bazaar this month. Yeah, I saw that. On the cover. Well, and you go, why is she on the cover? What has she done lately? Well, it's because they want to keep her relevant. Because even Serena, who's won 23 Grand Slams, doesn't want to be shut out by tennis. And it's true that the business aspect of tennis and the marketability of a player is a very important thing to maintain. And that must be tricky as as you evolve. Exactly. And I think Jill Schmoller and her team are doing a good job. And you'd think Serena, she's like... 23 grand slam she doesn't have to do it but they're doing it yeah it's her dream and it's her business 
Yeah, that's her brand, and she's got to keep it going. But I think that's everything in the entertainment business. I mean, you see Jennifer Lopez evolving. So that's what I've learned in the last couple of years, how interesting the spin factor is. Do you have some tidbits for us on how you're planning on spinning yourself in the future? <laughs> I'm working on it. I mean, <laughs> I, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm writing a book. So that might help my spin. Oh, excellent. Do you have a title? Yes. American Daughter. That's intriguing. It's intriguing, especially since I said I feel non-American. It is, exactly. Yep. So I'm bringing it back. And, you know, there's a show called Mixed-ish coming out in September. And I've always said I'm a mixed American, meaning I'm multicultural. So... Hopefully it'll be relevant to the times. That sounds really interesting. So do we have any idea when the book's going to be released? Well, probably in about a year. I mean, it depends, you know, publishing, it depends. So probably about a year, year and a half. It takes a while. Well, I look forward to seeing that on the shelves. Yeah, and I'm working hard to come back because I'm getting sick of being called Madison Keys gosh it's so annoying I mean Madison seems like a nice girl I don't know her but I think because of our height and our brown skin people just think we're they just don't even think they're being rude so that's another annoying thing when you have brown skin they all think you look alike time to take back your brand exactly well I'm rooting for you Yeah, thanks. I got called Madison Keys last night by a fan. So that was funny. Well, if it's any consolation, I used to get called Ronda Rousey when she was famous. (laughs) Well, that's cool. (laughs) At at least they're thinking you can take people out. (laughs) Well, I still have a tennis player's shoulders. What can I say? (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, so anything else you want to ask? Awesome. No, I mean, you've got to go and do stuff. And I'm so appreciative of your time today. This has actually been a really fun conversation. We've covered all manner of things. No problem, Margo. Hopefully you'll be able to get some good clips. Yes. Are you coming to New York, by the way, for the conference? No, unless I'm playing, I'm not coming. Okay. (laughs) I won't be there. Well, I, sure. I'm going to add you on like Facebook or something so that we can stay connected because I'm traveling all the time and I would love to meet you. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm not on anything else. Instagram. What's your handle? Yeah. I'm trying. It's just my name, Alexander Stevenson. I started it three months ago. I'm trying. I don't like to share. I mean, I like to share one-on-one, but I just don't get Instagram. Yeah. And it's but it's not going away. I understand. Yeah. If you can't beat them, join them. Exactly. Well, hey, have a great afternoon. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Margo. Have a good day. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. The world of Alexandra Stevenson. She doesn't really like Instagram. So let's go and show her what it's all about. Go and give her a follow. And stay tuned. Because coming up next week, we have Kevin O'Neill. Kevin is the coach of Casey McNally, who just last week won the doubles at the Washington Open with Coco Goff. When we chatted, Kevin gave me some excellent advice. His advice, of course, was aimed at professional athletes. However, it's the kind of advice that we can use in our everyday lives. You should definitely watch out for the episode. 
In the meantime, for all the latest updates, follow us on Instagram, The Tennis Connection Podcast. (laughs) 